What if the book of Acts didn't exist? When we finished up the Gospel of John, the next book in our Bible was Paul's letter to the church at Rome. If that were the case, all kinds of questions would swirl through our minds. How did the news of events on the outskirts of the empire get all the way to the capital city of Rome? What caused the church to grow in just a few short years from a smattering of timid, fearful Jewish disciples huddled away in Jerusalem to a full-fledged Gentile church living openly in the heart of the empire? And an even more basic question we would ask, what's a church? Who is Paul? Why a letter? If we jump from John to Acts, there would, or from John to Romans, there would be many, many questions. The book of Acts answers those questions plus much, much more. Acts traces the expansion of Christianity across the Mediterranean rim. From the Jewish capital of Jerusalem to the Gentile capital of Rome, it explains how the Jewish Messiah became Lord of the Gentiles. Before Jesus ascended into heaven, he gathered his disciples and he told them to go and make disciples of all nations. The book of Acts tells us how they did it. It is absolutely crucial we study this book For there has never been a more successful period of church history than the first church. In a single generation, the gospel was taken to the uttermost parts of the earth. Just 30 years after Jesus' resurrection, Paul told the Colossians that the gospel had gone out into, quote, all the world. In Thessalonica, the Christian missionaries there were accused of turning the world upside down. And their success was without the 21st century help of technology and transportation. The only media they had was pen and parchment. The church had little money and no marketing. My, at the time, there was no such thing as church buildings. The modern church desperately needs to recapture the power of the early church. The 1996 blockbuster movie entitled Twister, was about a group of tornado chasers. One reason for the film's success was its vivid and its lifelike special effects. One night shortly after its release, the movie was showing at a drive-in theater near Kansas City. During the movie, a real-life tornado swept through the theater, ripping apart the screen and destroying the concession area. Talk about some realistic special effects. That might have been too vivid for my taste. I bring this up, though, to direct our prayers. For over the next few months, as we study the outpouring of God's Spirit and the growth of the early church, why not pray for God to bring to life what's on the screen? We have the same loving Father. We have the same Savior. We have the same Holy Spirit. Why not ask for an Acts repeat? The book of Acts begins, the former account I made, O Theophilus. Luke writes his gospel and the book of Acts to a friend named Theophilus. Apparently, when this kid was born, the doctor said, man, that's the awfulest looking baby I've ever seen. And the name stuck, Theophilus. 
Actually, the name Theophilus means friend of God. This fellow was possibly a Roman official, evidently a close friend of Luke and the early church. Remember, Luke was a doctor who traveled with Paul as his personal physician. Later in the book of Acts, he writes of Paul's journeys in the first person. He was actually there with Paul. Luke was also a historian. In fact, he used the two years that Paul was in prison in Caesarea to canvas the region. He could have visited the coast and Antioch and Galilee and Nazareth and Samaria and Jerusalem, researching his gospel and the book of Acts. Often in Roman times, a rich benefactor would bankroll a work of art or history. And it's possible that Theophilus may have sponsored Luke's work. If so, what a contribution! In heaven, Theophilus gets introduced as, to the newbies as the guy who gave us a quarter of the New Testament. That's a pretty good claim to fame. Well, Luke says of his gospel that it was the former account of all that Jesus began both to do and teach. And it would have ended with the crucifixion, but three days later, Jesus Christ rose from the dead. He wasn't done doing and teaching. He had only just begun. There was much, much more to come. Some stories desperately deserve a sequel, and Luke's trusty pen was ready. Acts is the follow-up to the story in Luke's gospel. Reminds me of the guy who went to see the movie Malcolm X. You know, he said the movie was so well done, he wished he had taken the time to go see one through nine. Get it? One through nine? Get it? Well, in John chapter 14, verse 12, Jesus promised his disciples, the works that I do, you will do also, and greater works than these you will do. Well, this was fulfilled in the book of Acts. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, the disciples continued the works and teachings of Jesus. Luke's sequel is called the Acts of the Apostles, but it could have just as easily been the Acts of the Holy Spirit, for Jesus continues to do and teach, even today. Well, Acts chapter 1, verse 1. The former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day in which he was taken up, after he, through the Holy Spirit, had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs being seen by them during 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. The four Gospels record only a few of the post-resurrection appearances of the risen Lord. But Luke assures us that Jesus provided many infallible proofs. Jesus knew that the future generations of Christians, that their faith would hinge on the testimony of these eyewitnesses. Thus, he made sure that the evidence of his resurrection was so undeniable and so irrefutable, so clear and so conclusive that none of the disciples would ever doubt its reality. And not surprisingly, none of them did. Verse 4 tells us, And being assembled together with them, he, that is Jesus, commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, 
but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. In the Old Testament, Moses was given the most mammoth babysitting job in history. For 40 years, he cared for 2 million juvenile, juvenile delinquents. And Moses needed help. Rather than deposit the Holy Spirit solely on Moses, God poured out His Spirit on 70 elders. But this decentralization of spiritual power concerned Moses' apprentice Joshua. Joshua thought, what if the common folks start to think that they too can have God's power? Well, I love Moses' reply. In Numbers 11, he says, Oh, that all the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord would put his spirit upon them. Moses didn't want to hoard the Holy Spirit. Moses wanted all God's people to have the power of the Holy Spirit. And Moses' wish became the Father's promise. Throughout the Old Testament, from Isaiah to Jeremiah to Ezekiel to Joel, God predicted that the day would come when God would pour out His Spirit on all His people. Now the time is near. The disciples are told to go to Jerusalem and wait until they are baptized with the Holy Spirit. And here's where some terminology can trip us up. On the subject of the baptism of the Holy Spirit, some of our Baptist brothers are quick to point out 1 Corinthians 12 verse 13. For by one spirit, we are all baptized into one body. In other words, when a person becomes a Christian, they're initiated by the Holy Spirit into the body of Christ. Thus, Baptist types claim that the baptism of the Spirit is synonymous with conversion. Not so fast. You know, some words have multiple meanings. Take our English word bear. It's a grizzly. It's carrying a load, it's birthing a child, it's endurance, it's lots of stuff. Bear has many definitions. And likewise, the Greek word baptizo, it also has multiple meanings. On the one hand, baptizo can mean to initiate. You know, when a rookie quarterback enters his first game and gets sacked, we say he got his baptism into the NFL. But the word can also mean to dip, or to engulf, or to immerse. Thus, when a person is baptized with water, they're submerged or dipped down into the water. So when Paul, in his letters, uses the term baptism, he is referring to the initiation. According to Paul, to be baptized by the Spirit is to be made part of the body of Christ. But when Luke or Jesus or Peter use the term, they're speaking of being engulfed or immersed, like in a water baptism, but in the power of the Holy Spirit. And so here in Acts chapter 1, Luke will refer to this experience with the Holy Spirit in five ways. As a baptism, an engulfing, an immersing, as reception, 
He comes upon, we're told. He fills. He is poured out. My point is, don't get caught up in the semantics and miss out on the dynamic. Call it what you want. But what we all need is to be drenched in the power of the Holy Spirit. Verse 6 continues. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And oh my, these disciples, they were once again focused on Israeli politics. When will Jesus assume the throne? Jesus will be king when he returns, but until then his kingdom will rule spiritually. He'll rule in and over the hearts of men and women. They'll better understand this when the power of the Holy Spirit comes upon them on the day of Pentecost. For we're told now, and he said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons when the Father has put in his own authority. They were preoccupied with God's plan for the future only because they lacked the power for the present. That will change on the day of Pentecost. Verse 8. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Notice verse 8 provides us a power, a purpose, and a plan. The power is the Holy Spirit. Our purpose is to be witnesses, and the plan is to spread out from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. Verse 8 actually becomes an outline for the book of Acts. Chapters 1 through 7 will describe the church's outreach into Jerusalem. In chapters 8 and 9, the gospel goes out to Judea and then Samaria. And then in chapters 10 through 28, we see it going to the ends of the earth. And to fulfill such a grand commission, the disciples, they need some supernatural help. And thus, Jesus promises that the Holy Spirit will come upon his disciples. This is the third of three experiences the New Testament teaches that a believer can have with the Holy Spirit. In John chapter 14, remember, Jesus said that the Spirit would be with them and he will be in them. Before we're saved, the Holy Spirit is with us. He's alongside us. He's convicting us of sin. He's drawing us to the Savior. When we believe in Jesus and give our lives to Him, the Holy Spirit comes to dwell in us. He's with us. He's in us. But there is a third experience that we can have with the Holy Spirit where the Spirit comes upon us. He engulfs us with His love and His power. And this is what Jesus promises us here. Recently, the folks at Carnival Cruises, they learned an important lesson. On February the 10th, 2014, a fire broke out in the engine room of one of its ships, the Triumph. The cruise ship lost power and could no longer flush its toilets, cook its food, or even cool its cabins. And for the 4,200 passengers and crew, this was a disaster. Four days later, the ship docked in Mobile Bay, ending the nightmare. 
Three months later, when the Triumph returned to sea, it was outfitted with new emergency power generators. Because the Carnival Cruises had learned a lesson the hard way, that when the power goes out, the party is over. Can I say that again? When the power goes out, friends, the party is over. And the same is true in the Christian life. With no power, we're dead in the water. Life is boring. Waste piles up in our lives. People starve spiritually. It's not cool. We need the power of the Holy Spirit to be what God wants us to be. Every Christian has the Holy Spirit dwelling in them, but not all Christians have His power upon their lives. And that's why we bomb rather than become bold. We need the power of the Holy Spirit. Corey Ten Boone once put it this way. She says, it takes two batteries to energize a flashlight. The first battery is regeneration, and the second battery is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Is your flashlight trying to shine light with just one battery? It needs two batteries. Jesus said John baptized or immersed his followers with water, but Jesus will baptize his followers with the awesome power of the Holy Spirit. Now when he had spoken these things while they watched, he was taken up. And a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? Hey, for Jesus, his ascension was a reunion. After a long and excruciating journey, Jesus returned home. It was like an astronaut re-entering the earth's atmosphere for Jesus. He was going home. But for the disciples, his ascension was a bewildering moment. I'm sure they stood there with dropped jaws, amazed at the sight they were beholding, with all sorts of uncertainties and questions in their head. I'm sure at the top of their list was the question, well, what next? Jesus had overcome their enemies. He had risen from the dead. Why is he leaving us now? Well, the angel assures them, this shame Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. In other words, you'll see him again. He'll return a second time. But implied is that there was work to do in the meantime. The gospel of Jesus now needs to be spread to the ends of the earth. The problem was that these disciples weren't ready. Now understand, they had seen Jesus, they had heard Jesus, they had been with Jesus, they had learned from Jesus. But they weren't ready. Not yet. What did they lack? They lacked power. And so do you. We too lack power on our own. Hey, we can be schooled, and we can be experienced, and we can even be sincere. But if we don't have the Holy Spirit's power, we lack what we need. The disciples need the baptism of the Holy Spirit, so Jesus tells them to go to Jerusalem and to wait. Verse 12, Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, 
which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey. The Mount of Olives is east of Jerusalem. It's actually east of the Kidron Valley. It's maybe a half-mile walk back to the upper city and the upper room. And when they had entered, they went in, up into the upper room where they were staying. And this was probably the same upper room where they had eaten the Last Supper. Tradition says it was the house of John Mark. Luke tells us who was there. Peter, James, John, and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas the son of James. The gang's all here, with the exception of Judas Iscariot, the betrayer who hung himself. With the exception of Judas Iscariot, all 11 disciples were present and accounted for. These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women. And there were a group of women there as well. These women had remained loyal to Jesus. Mary of Bethany, Salome, Mary Magdalene, there were others. And Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. And notice the mention here of Jesus' family. This is interesting. First, his mother Mary. Notice, Mary is now a follower of her son. Her son has become her savior. And notice, no one here is treating her as an object of veneration. No one is seeing her as over the disciples. She's just among them. She's just a fellow follower. And it's also noteworthy to find his brothers in the upper room. For the last time we saw them, Back in John chapter 7, verse 5, it read, Even his brothers did not believe in him. Apparently, the resurrection had opened their minds and had changed their hearts. Jesus' brothers were now his believers. And in those days, Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples. Altogether, the number of names was about 120. Peter was definitely the leader in the group. And Peter said, men and brethren, this scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke before by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered with us and obtained a part in this ministry. Now this man purchased a field with the wages of iniquity, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his entrails gushed out. And it became known to all those dwelling in Jerusalem, so that field is called in their own language, Akeldama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, Let his dwelling place be desolate, and let no one live in it, and let another take his office. Peter quotes two Davidic Psalms, 69, verse 25, and 109, verse 8. One was a prophecy, Psalm 69, verse 25, a prophecy that rendered the land to be desolate, the land that was was purchased with the blood money, the betrayal money. And then the other psalm, Psalm 109, verse 8, predicted Judas' succession. And there's a couple of points to clarify here. First, Matthew 27, verse 7, tells us that the chief priest paid for the land, the potter's field. But since the money 
they gave to purchase the field had also been given to Judas or been given to Judas first. Here in Acts chapter 2, Luke says that Judas actually made the purchase, and in a technical sense, he did. Also, Matthew 27 verse 5 tells us that Judas hung himself. Here, Luke tells us that he fell and perforated his abdomen so that his guts poured out. It's a pleasant picture. Put the two accounts together, though, and and this is what must have happened. Judas hung himself. The limb snapped. His body fell on the rocks, and his bloated bowels exploded. Now Peter discerns from Psalm 109 that Judas should be replaced. And I think the point to gather from all of this is that Peter and the early church were looking to the Scriptures for guidance. They went back to their Bibles. What should we do now? They were being guided by the Scriptures. Verse 21, Therefore, of these men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John to that day when he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. Notice Peter's qualifications for the man to replace Judas and to become the 12th apostle. First was longevity. He needed to have followed Jesus from the start. He needed to have been with them for the whole three and a half years. And second, he needed to have been an eyewitness of the risen Christ. And they proposed two. Joseph, called Barsabbas, who was surnamed Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and they said, You, O Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which of these two you have chosen to take part in this ministry and apostleship, from which Judas by transgression fell, that he might go to his own place. And they cast lots, and the lot fell on Matthias. And he was numbered with the 11 apostles. They draw straws in essence, and it comes up Matthias. Now to me, there is no doubt that Peter was correct in his understanding that a replacement was needed. There are several places that require 12 apostles. But once again, Peter's impulsive nature may have caused him to jump the gun here and select the wrong guy. That's personally my opinion. D.L. Moody once said, trying to understand the Bible without the Holy Spirit is like trying to read a sundial by moonlight. I think Peter's interpretation was right, but was his application wrong? Perhaps it was. Was he being led by the Holy Spirit? Apparently not. They cast lots. And casting lots was the equivalent of rolling dice. It was a game of chance. After Pentecost, after the Spirit is poured out, you never again see in the New Testament anybody discerning the will of God through casting lots. Never again. For once the Holy Spirit comes, from that point onward, the church relies totally on the guidance of the Holy Spirit. That's why it's my opinion that Matthias was not God's choice to be the 12th apostle. On the road to Damascus, Jesus will choose Paul as the 12th apostle. He calls him the apostle to the Gentiles. That's just my opinion. 
I may have to apologize to Matthias one day. <laughs> so be it. Chapter 2 begins. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. That's a good place to be, in harmony, together. Pentecost is the Greek word which means 50th. It was the 50th day or the day after the seventh Sunday after Passover. Pentecost was originally the Jewish feast of weeks or harvest. It celebrated near the end of May. At the conclusion of the spring growing season, two of the first sheaves of wheat were offered to the Lord by the priest in the temple. And this was fitting symbolism, for on this Pentecost, God will begin a harvest of souls that we call the church age. And he does so by dedicating two bunches, first the Jews and then the Gentiles. Also, the Jews observed this feast as the anniversary of the giving of the law. And two sheaves of wheat were also symbolic of the two tablets of the Ten Commandments. Again, it's fitting that on the day that the law was given to Israel, God poured out His grace on the church. Here's more imagery. Exodus 32 says that on the day Moses received the law, 3,000 of the sons of Levi fell in judgment. In contrast, at the Feast of Pentecost, we're going to find out that when God pours out His Holy Spirit, 3,000 souls are going to get saved. We're told in verse 2, And suddenly there came a sound from heaven, as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Now in the Bible, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, is depicted as the wind. In the Old Testament, he's called the Ruach. In the New Testament, Numa. Both words mean wind. And as with the wind, you can't predict or chart the Spirit's movements. The wind has a mind and will of its own. And so it is with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is a mystery. All you can do is trust Him and lift yourselves in His direction. An albatross is a strange bird. Its wingspan is 12 feet long, 12 feet wide. But its body weight makes it too heavy to take off on its own. When the wind is stationary, the albatross is grounded. The bird stays airborne by gliding. But wow, can an albatross glide. Scientists have strapped a radio transmitter onto one albatross And after 30 days and 9,000 miles, the battery died, but the bird was still over the ocean. It's estimated that an albatross can stay at sea years at a time, just gliding on the wind. And its secret is its ability to ride the wind. We too are like the albatross. We're grounded without the wind of the Holy Spirit. But our wings are faith. And if we stretch out our faith, we can soar. We can catch a gust of the Holy Spirit. And we can ride on the power of the wind. Well, 
There in the upper room, there was a sound like the rushing of a mighty wind, but there was also a fire. Along with the wind came fire, for then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire. Bright little flickers of fire appeared over the heads of the disciples, and one sat upon each of them. Now, when Moses dedicated the Old Testament tabernacle, God sent fire down from heaven to consume the sacrifice. It happened again when Solomon dedicated the temple. Now a third time, a new temple, a spiritual temple is being dedicated in which we are its living sacrifices. And again, fire from heaven falls at the opening ceremonies. In the tabernacle and in the temple, the flame was never repeated. Likewise, in Acts, the holy flares appear only once. Today, the church opens its doors. But the power and the power of the Holy Spirit is the possession of every believer. That's verse 4. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. With the wind and fire came a filling. The wind and fire never gets repeated, but the filling is your possession. It's my possession. God's Spirit overwhelmed those who were waiting on His power. God rewarded their faith with the filling of the Holy Spirit. And they began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now understand, tongues is not a learn a language in 30 days kind of program. Tongues is not Rosetta Stone. The gift of tongues is not a native dialect. It's not a learned language. It may not even be a known or earthly language. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 13, Paul mentions the tongues of men and angels. The gift of tongues could also be an angelic language. So what is this gift of tongues? Well, when my heart is so full of praise to God that I can't find the right words to express my love for Him, His Spirit comes to my rescue. He places words in my mind that I might not understand, but I utter them by faith, trusting the Spirit that they are the exact representations of my feelings and of my expressions. And I utter those words. And when I do, it provides for me a release of my pent-up praise. See, God knows all the languages. And He refuses to leave anyone who wants to praise Him tongue-tied. The gift of tongues is still available to those who ask Him. Verse 5 And there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. Jews from all over the world now were in town for the feast. And when this sound occurred, that is the rushing wind, the multitude came together and were confused because everyone heard them speak in his own language. The wind had caught their attention, but the tongues, the miracle of the language, had stirred their imagination, had confused them. At Pentecost, the disciples were praising God in a variety of Mediterranean languages. 
so that the visitors to Jerusalem recognized the church's praise in their own native tongue. And they wondered, how could this be? Notice the reversal here. In Genesis 11, at the Tower of Babel, God confused the languages and he scattered the people. But here he brings the people back together. He reunites us by blessing us with the supernatural ability to speak his praise. Listen, in our rebellion, we were dispersed. But in his praise, we are reunited. If you're interested these days about bringing people together, this could be a clue as to how. In his praise, we are reunited. Verse 7, Then they were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, Look, are not all these who speak Galileans? And how is it that we hear each in our own language in which we were born? In the first century, most people were bilingual. They spoke the global Greek, and then they spoke their own local language. But now, in the streets of Jerusalem, visitors from all over the world are hearing Galilean Jews speaking in languages from distant villages all over the empire. Not the Greek, but the local languages from all over uh, the Mediterranean world. These were, they were speaking in languages that they themselves had never even heard before. How could this be? Parthians and Medes and Elamites, those dwelling in Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus in Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya joining Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. And notice what they say. We hear them speaking in our own tongues, the wonderful works of God. The whole world was reunited in the streets of Jerusalem in the praises of God. And again, it's a clue to us. What will it take to bring folks back together today? Only God's praise can unite us and make us one again. And notice the content of what was spoken as they spoke in these different languages and spoke in these gifts of tongues. We're told they heard the wonderful works of God. See, this is the gift of tongues. The gift of tongues is always man speaking praise to God. If you travel in charismatic circles, you've heard the terminology, a message in tongues. Realize this is not a biblical phrase. The gift of tongues is not a message or a proclamation from God. It's a praise or a prayer to God. Paul states this clearly in 1 Corinthians 14 verse 2. He says, For he who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God. Prophecy is God speaking to man. Tongues is man speaking to God. Don't get the two confused. Verse 12 so they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, Whatever could this mean? Others mocking said, Ha, they're all full of new wine. They're just drunk. There were skeptics who wrote off the disciples as being drunk. They thought these Christians had taken a nip of distilled spirits rather than a dip into the Holy Spirit. And apparently there are some similarities between the two. Unbridled joy 
uninhibited expression, unreserved boldness, to be filled with the Holy Spirit is to be filled with enthusiasm. Years later, in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 8, old Pentecost Pete was still speaking of his experience. He said he, reminded, he was reminded of rejoicing with joy inexpressible and full of glory. That's how he described it. Joy inexpressible and full of glory. The Holy Spirit does provide us a supernatural buzz. Oh, you need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Verse 14, But Peter, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice and said to them, and he provides them an explanation of what had just happened. He says, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you, and heed my words. For these are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day, or nine in the morning. This is actually funny and a bit revealing, I suppose. Peter implies if it had been 9 p.m., you might assume that some of these disciples had hit the sauce. But not 9 a.m. Not even this rowdy crowd's going to get drunk before breakfast. Come on, give us a break. Here's the point. We're not drunk. He says, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And he goes on to quote what we know as Joel chapter 2, a very important prophecy. See, this crowd had just experienced a spiritual phenomena. Now Peter goes to chapter and verse to explain it. He says, this is what was spoken. In other words, guys, we're doing this by the book. All we do here is scriptural. Some charismatic groups excuse their emotionalism and their sensationalism by saying, well, more can be cooked up in the kitchen than appears on the menu. In other words, we, we can do all kinds of things that, that aren't necessarily spoken of in the Scripture. We, we, we dream up, we can do. But to me, that's lethal thinking. Make experience, rather than Scripture, the standard for the church, and you open yourself up to all kinds of deceptive and dangerous practices. See, to me, it's safer, and to Peter, it was safer to point to chapter and verse and rest on a biblical basis. Extra biblical experiences can steer us off track. That's why we need to stick to the script. In verse 17, Peter quotes Joel chapter 2. And it shall come to pass in the last days, says God. Joel prophesied that the Holy Spirit would be poured out in the last days. And hey, if Peter considered his day the last days, how much more applicable is this blessing to us? Hey, never let anyone tell you that the power and the gifts of the Holy Spirit were relegated to the first century and not for today. Hey, they are for the last days. That's today. God says, for the last days, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. I've seen some visions in my day. Now I'm looking forward to the dreams. And on my men servants and on my maidservants, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they shall prophesy. Recall Moses' wish. 
Well, the day has now come when the Spirit and His power are no longer the exclusive privilege of a chosen few. Today, everyone, he says, young and old, old maids, men servants and maidservants, old and young, male and female, bulldog and yellow jacket, can all be filled with the Holy Spirit. Hallelujah. Verse 19, And I will show wonders in heaven above, and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. These are Joel's images of God's last judgment. They correspond with what we'll read later in Revelation chapter 6 through 19. Remember, Peter is addressing a Jewish audience. And this is what will eventually what it will eventually take to wake up the Jewish people. The global cataclysms of the Great Tribulation and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in the last days will combine to bring salvation to the Jews at the end of time. Peter says, And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Here he applies this verse to the Jews. In Romans 10 verse 13, Paul quotes this verse in relationship to the Gentiles. Now, Peter begins a challenge in verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified, and put to death. Wow. Admire his boldness. What a difference the power of the Holy Spirit makes. Peter was the one who had denied the Lord before this same crowd just a few days earlier. Now he's standing up and he accuses them of lawless murder. Notice too how Peter obviously believed in both divine sovereignty and human responsibility. In one verse he teaches both predestination and free will. He says the cause of the crucifixion was both the will of God, but it was also due to the evil of man. He holds the Jews accountable, but he also knows that God was behind the scenes. He just makes no effort to reconcile the two views. Peter believes both. In verse 24, he continues to speak of Jesus, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. For David says concerning him, and he quotes here Psalm 16, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart rejoiced and my tongue was glad. Over my flesh also will rest in hope, for you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. Jesus' flesh and blown body would never deteriorate. That is, see corruption. Psalm 16 is a biblical prediction of his resurrection. Peter wraps up the quote of this psalm. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of joy in your presence. Jesus will return to God as he has just done. Peter continues his sermon by drawing a conclusion and by making an invitation. Men and brethren... Let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried. 
and his tomb is with us to this day. Therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him, that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne. He, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. In Psalm 16, King David, the heir of all the Messianic promises, predicted a risen Messiah. Peter argues that Jesus was the fulfillment of this prediction. He says, this Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses. Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. Peter declares that the Jesus they crucified is now sitting at the throne in heaven and he is now pouring out the power of the Holy Spirit on his church. The evidence he's there is what's happening here. That's what Peter's saying. For David did not ascend into heaven, into the heavens, but he says himself, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Peter quotes Psalm 110, verse 1. He says, David did not ascend. No one in the Old Testament ascended to heaven until Jesus had paid their pardon. Their soul went to Hades to wait for Jesus to lead them into God's presence. And now the coming of the Holy Spirit was proof of Jesus' heavenly arrival. Jesus promised his disciples that when he departed, he would send another comforter. Pentecost was proof that Jesus' word was good. The coming of the Comforter was evidence that his sacrifice had been accepted and that he had taken his seat as Lord of all. Stories told of Roald Amundsen, who was a Norwegian explorer. He was the first man to discover the South Pole. On one expedition, he took a homing pigeon with him, and he set it loose when he reached his destination. Imagine the joy when that bird arrived on his wife's windowsill in Norway. She knew that her husband was alive, that his mission was accomplished. And this is the message that Jesus sent us at Pentecost. Verse 36. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Again, what boldness. Just a few days earlier, Peter and his cohorts were hiding behind closed doors, unwilling to step outside for fear of the Jewish authorities. Now he's toe-to-toe with the same Jews who've engineered Jesus' execution, and he takes a jab. This Jesus whom you crucified. Where's the timidity now? Is this the same Peter we knew in the Gospels? And the answer is no. What a difference it makes to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? The Holy Spirit brought cutting conviction. They were gripped by their guilt. Verse 38, Peter answers them, repent And let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are far off. 
as many as the Lord our God will call. And notice the sequence. First you repent, and then you get baptized. By the way, this is why we reject infant baptism. A baby isn't old enough to repent. Thus, how can they be biblically baptized? You repent first, and then you're baptized. Now, some denominations use verse 38 as a proof text for what's called baptismal regeneration, that you're not saved until you're baptized. Yet examine the whole of Scripture, and you realize this cannot be true. The thief on the cross wasn't baptized, and yet Jesus said, Today you'll be with me in paradise. Paul told the Corinthians that he didn't come to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Obviously, the gospel and baptism are not the same. See, the New Testament is clear. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Commentator Warren Wearsby blames the King James for confusing the translation here in verse 38. Based on the Greek, he suggests it should actually read, Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus on account of the remission of sins. I personally have no problem with verse 38 as is. The New Testament never portrays baptism as essential for salvation. But if you're saved, why not get baptized? Why wouldn't you want to be baptized? To me, this verse shows the priority the New Testament places on baptism. In the early church, baptism was just a natural progression. You repent, you believe, you get baptized with water, and then you get filled with the Holy Spirit. In other words, salvation was a package deal. You get one, you get it all. Peter's phrasing of verse 38 reflects the fact that he saw repentance and baptism as a unit. One naturally followed the other. So why bother to separate them? In in other words, in the early church, when you came to Jesus, you went home wet. They baptized you right then and there. None of this committing and then waiting 20 years to follow it up with baptism. It's been said, an unbaptized believer is foreign to the book of Acts. Acts. 